Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with one of my idols, one of my favorite writers, Gary Indiana. You know what? I am so embarrassed to admit this. I have been meaning to read Gary Indiana's work for years and have never read anything by him. In specific, I've been wanting to read his book on Andrew Cunanan, the oh, yeah. serial killer much memorialized by Darren Chris in American Crime Story. But yeah, I'm fascinated by what I've heard of his work, though I have not jumped into it just yet. Not even like a review here or there? I must have read reviews, but like nothing is standing out. I feel like I must have read reviews of his similar to like when I would read Dale Peck reviews, which were like for the pure pleasure of them, but Mm -hmm. nothing is immediately coming to mind. But that's probably true. I probably have read his critical essays. Yeah, he wrote a great takedown of the recent Warhol biography. I believe it was in Harper's, but maybe I might be wrong on that, but it was just like amazing. And yeah, Gary is certainly one of my favorite critics. And he's written so many also great novels that I appreciate. And um, we were speaking about his novel, Do Everything in the Dark, which is Mm. so amazing, so timely. It was published 20 years ago. It was just reissued by Simeotext. And it feels like about as contemporary as can be. And it's about a group of friends, most of who are artists, writers who are all dealing with time, getting older and maybe not being exactly where they want to be in their lives. Um, (laughs) Vibes. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) Yeah, I certainly related a lot. And they're all confiding in in the narrator. And he's kind of also just psychically picking up on what's happening to them. It's a great book. It's dark, but it's also funny. And it's moving and the end is very moving. So it was a wonderful conversation. And Gary is so brilliant, has has been around for a long time. And I was really thrilled to speak with him. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing that. And if you listeners are looking forward to hearing that and like what you hear on the LARB Radio Hour, we rely on donations from listeners like you. So if you would like to contribute, our donation link is now available at lareviewofbooks.org backslash radio hour. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash radio hour. We so appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. And let's get to the interview. Let's do it. I'm so honored to be speaking with the writer, critic, and artist Gary Indiana today. He's the author of eight novels, including Horse Crazy, Rent Boy, The Shanghai Gesture, and his true crime trilogy, Resentment, a comedy, three-month fever, the Andrew Cunanan story, and depraved indifference, as well as the memoir, I Can Give You Anything But Love. His astute and penetrating criticism, essays, and reportage have been collected in numerous volumes, including the recently released Fire Season, as well as a collection of his art reviews for the Village Voice, Vile Days. He has written plays as well as acted in many plays and films, and his artwork has been exhibited internationally. Today, he joins me to speak about another one of his novels, Do Everything in the Dark, which was originally published in 2003 and just reissued by Simeo Text. 
told on the heels of the aftershock of AIDS and the coming catastrophe of 9-11, alongside an ever-increasing globalization where people all too willingly have turned into things, do everything in the dark centers on a group of friends who, in Indiana's words, are, quote, experiencing crises in their personal or professional lives, having committed themselves to relationships and careers that, however bright and promising for years, were suddenly not working out. The characters are artists, actors, filmmakers, and writers like the autofictive narrator of the novel, Gary Indiana. Over the summer of 2001 in New York, the narrator becomes both an access point and witness to the various breakdowns his friends undergo. He receives their missives from far-flung locations across the world, their late-night phone calls, and follows their private moments from an omniscient point of view, doubting through it all his ability to help them or change the course of their lives, if life at this late point in history is even livable, while offering his friendship all the same. Thanks so much, Gary, for joining me. Oh, thank you for that nice introduction. I wondered if we could start just by talking about the connection between the characters in the book. I know that they're friends, but in some way it feels much greater than that. Like they're so deeply connected and their fates, even if their different fates seem very intertwined. And I kept on thinking as I was reading the book that it's like, these people see each other in their dreams, that there's just a deep psychic connection between them. And I thought it was interesting when I was reading the introduction that another title you had in mind for the book was Psychotic Friends Network. Well, you know, it was a milieu, let's say, I based a lot of the book on. They weren't all necessarily connected. You know, some were, some weren't. I mean, some of them were only connected through the narrator. And in that way, I guess, were part of his own psychic life rather than something shared. But the book was also about a certain disintegration of that milieu because it was it said just before 9-11, like the summer before 9-11. But much of the book was written after 9-11. And that shifted a lot of things around that event. I didn't want to depict it, but there was this feeling in the air just before 9-11 that, I mean, some people claim not, never to have experienced it, but I certainly did. That things were breaking up. Alliances, groups of people were just breaking up for one reason or another, but it seemed to be that history was accelerating somehow. I guess what I'm getting at too is that there's this way in which there's, even if someone, like there are people who are such in such different leagues in the book, like there's someone like Tova Finkelstein, who's become just this internationally renowned writer and critic. And then, you know, someone like Miles Sutherland, who is not producing like he had. And even though she has kind of used him or mentored him and dropped him, I have a sense that she has not escaped him. Like she can never leave him behind completely. Yeah, I guess for that particular personality, who has such an investment in being sort of lady bountiful and supportive of other people who are career-wise less fortunate than she, you know, that it's, you can't just cut people off. I don't know, Tova is an interesting character. Yeah, yeah, she is. She is. And of course, what I think is also so interesting about the novel is that I've read that it was based off of, or you even allude in the introduction that you were writing about kind of real people that you knew, but like as caricatures, the people they would 
play in a play or in a movie, how you would cast them. But there are also types, creative types, that even if Tova Finkelstein is kind of based on Susan Sontag is what I assume, there's someone like her in every group of artists, you know? Yeah, there's usually a figure like that. But also, I mean, I said this recently in an interview. I mean, the fact that people so readily identified certain of the characters with real people was just my own lack of imagination. I didn't really want them to be read that way. But, I mean, everything in a novel comes from somewhere. But, you know, I think people misunderstand fiction very much now because so much of what's published now is in some sense, autobiography or memoir, you know, and people don't understand the function of fiction anymore, which is, you know, sort of to allow the writer to use their imagination to the extent that whatever reality they're basing things on is also partly their creation. And I had this weird superstition when I started writing fiction that, if I didn't stick very close to the cause and effectness of what happened in the book, that it wouldn't be real. It wouldn't feel real. And I guess I never really went very far from that in a way. And, you know, some people can just construct these alternative worlds where people, you know, have different professions and different different lifestyles, different income, different this, different that, and good for them. But I, I find it, I have to always start from something. I'm trying to do a novel now that where the characters really are not very rooted in any particular people that I know, but inevitably you're going to take things out of one person or another. A lot of the characters in the book are composites, a little bit from this one, a little bit from that one. But initially they were all based on paintings. This friend of mine, Billy Sullivan, who's a painter, he had painted a lot of pictures of people that we knew. And some of them were people I didn't know also, but he wanted me to write stories based on the images of these people. So that's how that happened. It was more of fiction to begin with, in a way. I was trying to think, well, we put these people in this particular situation, what would happen? Rather than anything too close to real things that happened, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, of course. And I... It's interesting that you were working on this book, you know, shortly on the heels of the the trilogy. In those books, you were working off real life figures and inventing interiority for them, but you didn't know them. And in this case, you know, many of the people you did know that you were using as the kind of model for what you were writing. I wonder about that difference. It was a different process in a way. The crime stories were all, you know, based on very identifiably real, real stories. But I think what was misunderstood at the time that those books were published was that these stories were had already been processed through the collective mangle. I wasn't trying to capitalize on them in any commercial sense at all. In fact, the fact that they were kind of over and done with was what attracted me to them because I saw them as, first of all, having been really inadequately reported, let's say, they had been made into media narratives that were very far from reality. But also, I didn't put any pressure on myself to exploit them per se, but just to use them as the jumping off point for sort of commentary on the society. 
And in this instance, I don't know. I think I didn't have a preconceived notion of what the book would be. I just started writing these little mini stories that um, would go with the paintings. But then that project fell through at a very early stage. So I just continued. It was a different process because I had the I had the plot of, or not the, I guess the plot of those crime books ready-made. They weren't going to come out different. I mean, I invented a lot of things in those books. I mean, I invented a lot of what went on, but the basic stories were already a matter of record. I mean, the factual parts of them were a matter of record. Whereas with this group of friends or, you know, connections, there's really no documentary evidence for what's in the book. You know, it's based on what people told me or told the narrator. Yeah. And, you know, another thing is that those true crime novels have a specific trajectory because you are working more with like a succinct sequence of events. And I read in your introduction that this book, you were trying to both address linear time but then a different kind of time, the Kronos versus the Kairos. So I wonder if you could talk about just the kind of moment in which the book is situated and that it's taking place the moment in these people's lives and what, how you wanted to bring those two kind of time signatures together in the novel. Well, the, the linear, the diachronic aspect of it was simply that it was a summer when essentially all the people or most of the characters involved were going out of their daily routine. Either they were going to this island or one of them was traipsing around in Istanbul and Paraguay and all these other places that would have a definite ending at the end of the summer, essentially. And then the um, Kairos part of it was actually something that doesn't appear in the book because the book ends three days before 9-11 or two days, I can't remember. Uh, I think two days before 9-11. But in fact, the book had only been one third written by then. You know, and so this is like, a you know, it's the anticipation of a pivotal moment that's going to change many things in people's lives. I mean, not not the event itself because nobody in the book was in the trade center or anything like that. But things in New York particularly began really to change at that point. A lot of people moved away. Uh, A lot of European people that lived here went back to the countries that they came from. And a lot of people who had the means left town for a while. And a lot of people who didn't were stuck here. But one way or another, it really changed the whole atmosphere. And, you know, that could have been a moment for people to do things differently, but they really didn't at the end. You know, everything sort of reconstituted itself eventually into this capitalistic machine because they're all caught in that also. I mean, money is the unseen but ever-present character in the book. You know, people can't live like this unless they have money. Yeah. I mean, then that's the thing about the title that when I saw the epigraph and saw where it came from, I was like electrified because I already loved the title. But then maybe you could explain a little bit about 
the book that you founded in? It's a, a little book by Jonathan Swift called Directions to Servants. And it's basically a manual telling servants at the period that it was written, which must have been the 1760s or somewhere in there, you know, how to kill their masters, basically. I mean, how to drive them insane, how to do everything wrong so that they spend all the master's money, they destroy all the master's credit at the local. I mean, the irony, of course, was that the servants in that period were illiterate, so they couldn't read the book. It was for the amusement of the masters. But um, I had a couple of things in mind, which were, one is that my friend Daniel Schmidt, a great filmmaker, Swiss filmmaker, had made a film many, many years ago called Do Everything in the Dark or Do All in the Dark, whatever, you know, to save up your master's candles. And there's a lot of dramatization in the book of what are basically master-servant relationships. There's the, the prominent person and the lesser prominent person. There's a very tenuous balance between a lot of people that are couples and then also the idea that everybody is kind of a slave to capital was something I had in mind. That's as much probably as I could say about it without actually quoting the book of Jonathan Swift, which I have an old-timey copy of it here somewhere. But I liked, I just liked the idea of it because it was so sardonic and it was so, at the same time, futile. I mean, he wasn't really telling the servants how to ruin their masters. He was telling the masters, like, he was amusing the masters, basically. So it's a double-edged kind of thing. For sure, yeah. It's such an amazing title. And I, and I also feel like another inference is that the characters in the book don't, they can't quite see their own position in the world. They're pretty blind to like, as much as they feel the effects of global capitalism and, you know, the inequity of surviving as artists or having to kowtow to greater artists. It's like the larger political ideas are not pulsing through their lives. And, and even, you know, like, global events, you know, you think, well, if the novel took place after 9-11, how much would they really understand things? I love this line that you have from Kafka's diary that the narrator quotes, I think, Germany declared war on Russia, went swimming all afternoon. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that there's a lot of really deliberate blind. I mean, the the most buffoonish characters to me are the famous artist and his wife that staged this intervention on, you know, the much less famous painter. I mean, they're basically figuring out a way to get rid of him, you know, but they're doing it supposedly for his own good because they care about him and they value him. And nothing could be further, obviously further from the truth. You know, they're doing it behind his lover's back. They're springing it on him when he's on an island that you can't get off of very easily. And, you know, sort of corner him with these distasteful people that in some cases don't even know him. But something of that remains true of everybody in the book. They're sort of semi-self-aware, but not really. And they're not certainly understanding what's happening to them is has been constructed for them by a society that dictates their behavior, essentially. Or they're trying to escape something, like the char Jesse character is trying to escape something, just himself. 
but being able to look at things head on, no. None of the people in the book are like that, except maybe Anna's father, who I, <laughs> you know, a psychic, essentially. You know, he's been struck by lightning twice. And I actually know of a case like this where a guy who was hit by lightning twice, if you were on the phone with him, he could tell you what objects were on your desk. <laughs> and I mean an old-timey phone without a camera attached to it. Wow. Or let's say purportedly. <laughs> uh-huh, I see. Yeah, it's. I definitely wondered, you know, for their ennui and misery, if like political engagement could be an antidote for this sense of, you know, I think purposelessness in, in a lot of ways they feel. Well, I think a lot of the characters in this book, if they did explore political engagement on some level, it would be on a very superficial level. It would be, you know, going to meetings of, you know, affinity groups or something like this. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't have much to do with, you know, community organizing or canvassing for people to vote. They wouldn't be doing that. (laughs) Which isn't ever to say that bad people. It's just that, like, being in the kinds of worlds that they exist in, people tend to be extremely self-absorbed. Artists are really self-absorbed people. Some are writers. Some are, you know, anybody that's working in the culture industry tend, as a producer, let's say. I think curators, people like this, you know, can be much more expansive in the way that they connect with the outer world because they have to. They have to deal with these people. Whereas the people themselves get these, you know, the fully de grandeur and... You know, and they get told constantly how great they are by other people. So, you know, they just take it for granted. Well, I'm pretty great. And um, all this political stuff, that's for other people. That's my sense anyway. I could be wrong. They could have a great Saul of Tarsus moment where they suddenly become engaged with the outside world. But I'm not sure. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Gary Indiana, author of Do Everything in the Dark. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Tom Kamita on the line. Tom is the author most recently of a nature book, a novel, and Tom has a book to recommend. I actually am going to recommend the entire of of an author. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but I can focus on a, a book or two. I just feel like everyone needs to read Percival Everett. I think he's my favorite living American author. I sometimes think of him as like the closest equivalent to like Cesar Ira in the United States. If you're, people are familiar with him, he's written like a hundred novels. They're all about a hundred pages long and and his range is huge. He's written like historical fiction and postmodern metafiction and ghost stories and these things. And Percival Everett also has written like a at least two Western novels, one kind of over-the-top like parody Western. And he was a trained philosopher before turning to fiction. The books I would recommend, I think that a good entry is Erasure, which is a story of... Um, a black author who is frustrated with the publishing establishment and then attempts to write what is seen as the 
by the public as like kind of like the best the great American novel or the best novel, but it is like a travesty and a parody of what one might think that is from the pen of a of a black author. But I also would recommend a book like Glyph, which pairs well with Dr. No, which just came out, his most recent book. It's kind of the pre well, Dr. No is kind of the sequel. And they're in genre-wise very different. Glyph is like a hybrid philosophy and like thriller. And I guess actually Dr. No is a hybrid philosophy and thriller text. But um that's also playing with like the genre of like James Bond novels. But you know, so much blue is this beautiful realist text. And really, I, I've not read all of them. I'm happy that there are more to read. And I, I just think his work is uh, endlessly stimulating and totally singular in, in our culture. And I would recommend his work. Wow, that's great. Yeah, we had him on to speak about his novel Telephone. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Which really blew my mind as well, just because it did seem like strange and kind of Pomo and really made me think about what fiction writing can be and this kind of variance of tone. And I definitely felt like I wanted to study literature all over again, reading that book. I've not read that one, but it, and also it has three different endings, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like depending on whatever copy you pick up that has a different ending. That's another thing. Who else in this, in American literary culture would do that? <laughs> you know, I, I just think there's no one else like him. And his short story collections are great too. I, I read Damned If I Do. He has this like amazing parody of like Strom Thurmond that, anyway, it's just a very wide range and you could get lost in his work. So tell us the author again, Tom, and the couple of books that you're recommending. Yeah, Percival. yeah. Okay, so it's Percival Everett and um, I'd recommend Erasure and Glyph and the new book, Dr. No, is great. Also, So Much Blue, I really enjoyed. And God's Country is the parody of, of the Western novel. That is great. Great. Thank you so much, Tom. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I don't know if we've ever had a, an over a, a recommendation, <laughs> so you're the first. Nice. <laughs> that was Tom Kamita. Their new book is The Nature Book. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Gary Indiana, author of Do Everything in the Dark. I did wonder, you know, I recently read an essay that you wrote about Gavin Lambert because I was reviewing The Goodbye People. And this book reminded me in some ways of The Goodbye People and that I feel like that book is an indictment. Like a lot of the behavior of people in that book can be explained by the isolation of Los Angeles, the Hollywood dream industry. But there seems like, you know, as well, there's just something deeper about human nature that Lambert is getting at. And in the same way, you know, I wondered how much this book is kind of indictments, maybe too strong a word, but a comment. I think it is too strong a word. Yeah, a comment on, you know, like New York literary or art scene and or you know, if these characters were in a different system, let's say they were in a place where, you know, more like Europe, where artists are paid more money for their work, or, you know, would they still be the same? That was something I wondered reading the book. My guess is that they wouldn't be the same. My guess is that if you had, if they were in a country where that gives some support, 
to art, to culture, where it wasn't every man for himself, every person for themselves, you know, in a scramble and uh, people being put in competition with one another, it would be very different. And they would probably be different. But there is this American thing of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. you got to do everything alone. You're the only person you can count on. And that pervades everything in America, depressingly. So, yeah, I do think, I mean, Gavin was very, he was extremely tolerant of, of the foibles of all the characters he wrote about. And, you know, we were great friends, but I'll tell you something. I read a part of um, the slide area when I was like 13 years old, and it had such an impact on me. It just, it really did make any, you know, I don't even think I ever told him this, but it was one of the first stories that I read that actually cut really deep into my mind. Because that's the one where the, the two nieces or whatever they are, contrive to make her think she's taking a trip around the world and they're actually, you know, just they're in the her house, but they've rigged up all this stuff to make her think she's in Venice on a gondola and this and that because she's blind and partly deaf. It really made me aware of, of something in a way that nothing before ever had. I think the, the way you can simulate reality, I mean, when people are vulnerable. And of course, this is... Um, this is more apt now than ever because people have disappeared into their phones. They've disappeared into the internet and they're, everybody's really worried about AI. But the thing is, I don't know how, how you would be affected by AI if you weren't already engaged with all this other crap. And, you know, I have to do this event tomorrow night and I'm going to announce that all Hollywood films produced in the past 10 years were written by AI anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I see your point. <laughs> For sure. But I think that to go back to the, I think, you know, Gavin, he had like a, a good outsider's eye. For Los Angeles, I mean, of course, he lived there forever and he was as insider as anybody could be. But at the same time, I like the surfaces of those books and I like the I like the characters very much. I think he he had a real sense of um, human frailty. And yeah, I think Do Everything in the Dark is a little bit like one of Gavin's books in a way. I mean, it's maybe a little harsher. I don't know. Well, that it reminded me of the goodbye people in that, you know, you see these people who are kind of in their in their insulation, there would be something unsympathetic about them, but nonetheless, it's not like I walk away from the book thinking, oh, these people are awful. You do end up having sympathy for them and the kind of depression and ennui and stasis they have feels relatable. And it's also, you know, it's such a literary trope. I mean, it goes back beyond just 20th century, beyond just capitalism, you know, people who cannot do anything, who cannot harness change in their lives, who are just diving down. The Goodbye People is an incredible book. I think it's the fact that they're just, they're interesting. The way that they are put together is interesting. The way that they fail at things is interesting. You know, because as I recall, most of the characters in that book always come up against something. I could do this, but I'm not gonna. It's like that. Sometimes they see the way out of, of their problems, but they don't act on it. 
Another thing, and again, I, I appreciate that, that not to find a point is put on this at all. I know you would never say something based like they're traumatized, but um, I did read the fact that this is coming, you know, shortly after the AIDS epidemic's apex as an aspect of a haunting of these characters. And um, there's a line where you even, in the, I think it's in the first, first page in that insanely gorgeous opening, you describe them as saying like, oh, the narrator says, our necropolis with anvils of memory chained to every street. And I couldn't help but think of the city has become a necropolis because of AIDS. Well, yeah, that's definitely the case. I think most of the people, not all the people in the book, but many of them all kind of formed this milieu back in the 70s. And then then came the 80s and there was this devastation, which was the first thing. I mean, before 9-11, that was the first thing, which... Um, you know, had a terrible, terrible impact. I mean, not only in terms of mortality, but so many really creative people died. I mean, just were gone and they were gone so quickly and so in such quantity. I mean, from one week to the next, there were just people dying, people dying. I think that um, the first moment at which people could suppress all of that, they did, because it was just not possible to live with that in your mind. I mean, if you were lucky enough, you know, not to get in, not to die. But I think that the trauma narrative is kind of not appropriate to the kind of people I write about. <laughs> you know, because most of the people I write about, you know, don't wear that stuff on their sleeve. I mean, they've internalized enough of the whole American ethos that they're, they're not going to blame something that happened to them in the past for why they're doing what they do. It may be the case that, that that's true, but it's not something that I particularly endorse. I think you have to be a little stoical in this life, if you can be. I'm not saying everybody can be, because a lot of people can't. But to me, the more interesting people are the people that go through stuff. And, you know, I saw this documentary on television a couple of weeks ago and it was like, I think, five or six women who had been in Auschwitz. And the first part of this documentary had them describing their lives before the Germans invaded whichever countries they were from, because they were all from different countries. And then the second part was their lives afterwards. And what was so striking to me was that these women who would describe for the camera the most unbelievably horrible things that one human being can do to another. Nobody broke down crying. Nobody had to stop because they were too trying. They were absolutely calm. And I thought, okay, that's trauma. That's real trauma. That's not, people think they get PTSD now from somebody insulting them on the subway. <laughs> and, and, you know, relatedly, there's an article today in The Guardian, which I, I hate myself for looking at these things every day, but I do. One of the hacks that does all the filler for The Guardian is going on about what a terrible person Karl Lagerfeld was. And, you know, that he made all these terrible statements about this, that, and the other. And I thought, well, yeah, that was Karl Lagerfeld's shtick. But they said, he never acknowledged how much harm he had done. And I thought he was just expressing a shitty opinion. He didn't harm you. 
Harm you is if I slap you across the face or push you down a flight of stairs. That's harm. What people say is not harmful or hurtful. If you can be hurt by some jerk saying something bad about you, then you can be hurt by anything. I think, you know, people are really too, and it becomes a whole thing, you know, it becomes a kind of badge of trauma. I've been harmed by Carl Lagerfeld fat shaming somebody. I feel, why? <laughs> why? It's just somebody's opinion. I mean, this is so pervasive now. Some of the characters in this book, not that they would be offended by Carl Lagerfeld's fat shaming, but they do seem very tender. They do seem unstable. They seem like the rejection that, or, you know, the disappointment that comes along with almost anyone's career in the arts is making them unable to create, move forward. That, you know, like even with Miles, you know, someone is making art about Ulrika Meinhof and then it's like, oh, I'm not going to be able to make my play now, you know, and he's happy about it. But still, it's like, oh, because there was one art show about, you know, her, you can't make a whole play. It's like the characters in this book are also not so stoic at times. Oh, no, they're very thin skinned, not in the same way as people are now, I think, you know, because they're more, especially more wrapped up in many of the sort of standard difficulties of the creative process. I mean, you get knocked back. I haven't written a book in several years, quite a few years now, you know, and I don't attribute that to any trauma. It's just, it's just the fact that sometimes the juice is there and sometimes it just isn't. And I think with him, especially that's an excuse. He went to the Ulrika Meinhof show, and so now he can't write the play. That's just an excuse. It's like something deeper that's preventing him from moving forward. I think what's happened in the case of many of the characters in the book is that they've had several decades of disappointment. And it may not be necessarily career disappointment, but a disappointment in their personal relations, disappointment in whatever they may have imagined their lives developing, you know, this is the problem with having plans. It's like, if you have big plans for yourself and they don't work out, then you experience this terrible sense of loss, but you haven't actually lost anything real. It's just your imaginative projection. And Miles is a, is a victim of that. Because he's also victimized by Tova. And that is, I think, something that would have been very crushing for many people. Since the book is so much about this, you say in the introduction, you don't like the binary of success and failure, but about people's dreams versus the reality, how things really pan out in their lives. I was wondering, I'd be curious if you're willing to talk about if you ever had or what visions for your own career you had, how you have sustained yourself as a writer for so many decades And like some of the anxieties in here about, you know, oh, I'm not getting a review here or there. This book hasn't done what I thought it would do. Like if that is a way of thinking you've experienced or not. Well, I think it's maybe a way that I experienced things many, many years ago when I was first publishing books a little bit or maybe even a lot in some instances. You know, things happen that you don't really have very much control over, but. 
I never had really big expectations. I feel very lucky right now because all my books are back in print. There's a whole younger audience that seems to really go for them in a way that nobody did when I published them originally. I mean, I had a certain dedicated readership, I guess, but nothing like now. So I I feel very fortunate, but I never had much expectation of anything. All I wanted was to be able to not have a job (laughs) and and have a roof over my head and enough food to eat. I, I never had like big dreams of being rich or any of that or being like world famous or I just never entertained all that. Maybe when I was very young, I did. I don't know. I, cause I, it's hard for me to put myself back in that, in that headspace. It's like um, when you're young, you don't know too much about how things are organized. I mean, when I first started publishing books with mainstream publishers, I had, I didn't really understand what that whole system was about. I thought it was like, days of old when, you know, you got one publisher and they stuck by you and they promoted your work and they bought the next book, whether the last one sold or not. Of course, everything had changed by the time I entered that landscape. So I had some pretty depressing experiences very early on with all of it, but it also sort of inoculated me against expecting unrealistic things. You know, for me, even the fact that that I have like three publishers now, Um, you know, is a mitzvah. I mean, how can I be unhappy about that? That question of time seems like it's so important in art, like that you just really can't know what's going to happen over time. And some people don't get that luxury of time because they die or they stop working. And I'm wondering for you, you know, the fact that your friend Cookie Mueller's work is now being reviewed in the New York Review of Books or even the artist who's on the cover of the new edition of Do Everything in the Dark, John Boscovich. Uh, John Boscovich, yeah. But the fact that these people died, they didn't know they were going to have this. They didn't stick around to get it. Do you, what do you think about that? Well, in Cookie's case, it makes me very sad because that would have been a dream for her. It would have been a dream come true for her to be reviewed in the New York Review of Books. I mean, it just would have. And I'm just so sad that she's not around to see that. I mean, she, Cookie always had a great attitude about everything. I mean, really. She's a very philosophical person at the end of the day. And I remember once in the late months of her life when she said to me, you know, I don't mind dying so much because in the future, everything's just going to be computers anyway. And of course, she was right. All the same, I wish she could still be around to see this. Of course, I'm very happy about it. I'm very glad that her work is finally being, that her writing is finally being appreciated and read very, very widely and referenced widely, which is wonderful to see her referenced, you know, with people like Eve Babbitts. I think she, Cookie's a better writer than Eve Babbitts, in my view, but Eve Babbitts isn't, isn't chopped liver either. I think that that's very heartening to me because it means like, you know, it's not just even that your books get reviewed, it's that you get referenced. You know, it's like the people refer to you as, as a figure, as somebody whose work is on a level with these other people. That's very, very meaningful to a writer, I think, that you see people quoting you. I heard Sontag tell me once, she said, you shouldn't quote other people so much. You want to be the one that's quoted. 
And it is, I can't tell you, it's like one of these like strangely disproportionately rewarding things to see somebody quoting you. It's just lovely. And it's lovely that Cookie is being quoted so widely and being referenced so widely by young women who, whatever else, can look at Cookie's work and say, I can do that. I can try that. I can try to write a book. I can try to write a story. Because I think women still get really the short end of the stick in this culture industry, really. It's just, it's shameful. But Cookie especially, she's such a -a one-of-a-kind person. And John, a different story with John. I mean, John was a maniac, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I mean, I felt very sad when John died, but it was also a very predictable event. I mean, yeah, he was doing a lot of drugs and abusing himself a lot. But he also, I mean, he was ingenious in so many ways. I mean, the things that he came up with were wonderful. And uh, I'm glad that he's back in some kind of form. But see, I don't think it would have been of any note to him, (laughs) you know, because John already assumed he was like the most important person that ever lived. So it would have just been confirmation. Um, (laughs) I see. Yeah, I mean, I think the the novel really speaks to this question of how to help a friend, how to be there for them. You know, it's like you'd address this kind of codependency between the characters surrounding drugs and alcohol that I thought you did like very subtly, but realistically in the way that people kind of couple up and destroy each other just in their enabling of each other. But at the same time, the intervention is ridiculous. And the narrator says many times or a few times, like, I could never say the right thing. I could never help. You know, I wondered like, is the witnessing that he provides for these people actually listening to them, recording their stories, any kind of compensation for the inability to actually intervene in someone's life and change it? Well, I think at the time the book came out, it did. (laughs) 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 Because frankly, I did settle up a few scores for people. But no, on a more practical, I don't really know what you can do for people when they're determined to crash and burn. I don't know what you can do. I know when I was in that mode, there wasn't much people could do for me. I mean, I never got so heavy into drugs or anything, but I used to drink really heavily and I used to alienate people right and left by getting really drunk in their presence and saying terrible things. I think there's very little, you know, because usually when you think about what usually deters people from bad behavior is a completely chance remark that somebody makes or a look that somebody gives them in a crowded room or some little thing that is not even intended to stop them. This is my experience anyway, is that something, somebody will drop into a conversation that they're not even emphasizing. Then later I'll go back into my layer of darkness here and think about it and think, oh yeah, that's right. That's one person I think is great at that is John Waters. John Waters has a way of cutting through the grease that's so simple and smart. He was being interviewed on France 24 the other day. And the person interviewing him said something about, what do you think of this cancel culture and all of this stuff and whatever? And he said, look, 
we should all be in this together. We should all, you know, like trans people, drag people, you know, gay, straight. We should all be part of the freak. You know, basically, we shouldn't be fighting with each other about this stuff. I mean, I'm not saying it as, as succinctly or as clearly as he did, but I thought, that's right. That's right. Forget about all of this, all of this internal stuff. There's some very clear-cut battle lines here that we should be on the right side of. But that's just an example. I just think, you know, he has a great way of looking at things, very generous and intelligent way of looking at things. And so he could say something to me, for example, and I would really pay attention. Was there one person who ultimately gave you that remark that changed the course of your of your drinking? Or I think Barbara Kruger, maybe who's always been kind and not at all confrontative about things, but just, you know, like that. I mean, I gave up drinking like over 20 years ago, so it's very remote now. But but I think typically the things that change us are things that we don't even recognize at the moment that they're happening, that they're changing something in us. And... It might take a while for something to really sink in or for you to actually remember something that then has a kind of mysterious, you know, chain reaction inside of you. I don't think what the narrator in Do Everything in the Dark is thinking that there's some way that he can intervene in these people's lives that he's not doing. And in fact, no such thing exists. There's nothing he can do, you know, except listen to people and say encouraging things, I guess, but really nothing concretely that he could do. I mean, he's not a powerful person. He doesn't have tons of money or, you know, I mean, there's not anything he could say, well, look, here's, here's $50,000. Will that make things better? You know, I mean, that's not possible for him. In a lot of cases, I don't think money would be the answer anyway, but I think everybody helps everybody when they're helping and everybody wrecks everybody when they're not helping. So, mm, mm-hmm. Well, maybe uh, that's a good place to end on, on those words of wisdom. Thank you so much, Gary, for talking with me today. Well, thank you for interviewing me. It was very pleasant. That was Gary Indiana. His novel, Do Everything in the Dark, was just reissued by Simeotex. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.